Lord, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity to come together to look at your word. We ask for your guidance, your leading as we examine this book. And thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Jude, chapter 1. <laughs> Verse 11. Jude, up to this point, he's been talking. One of the major themes in Jude is the whole idea of the consequence to disobedience. And he's giving many, many examples of angels that have just been disobedient and individuals. And we're going to see here in this uh, section that we're getting ready to go into that he's continuing this example of disobedience. So in verse 11, Woe to them that have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perish in the gainsayings of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit wither without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I'm not even sure I'm going to get that far, but I wanted to read the sentence. <laughs> that was all one sentence. So he says here, Woe to them that have gone the way of Cain. Now, I'm not going to have to go too much over the story of Cain. We know the story of Cain, uh, Cain and Abel, you know, the first uh, children of Adam and Eve that are mentioned in the scriptures. They go and make a sacrifice. Abel. Uh, what did I say? I didn't even say it. Cain and Abel. <laughs> I know I didn't say Cain and Abel, but Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel gives a sacrifice of the lamb with blood, just as God gave them. Cain comes in with fruits and vegetables. God doesn't accept his sacrifice. And his reaction is not to say, God, I'm sorry. I'll do it right the next time. It is, I'm going to go kill my brother. <laughs> Uh, quite, a, quite an interesting uh, you know, way of reacting. And we understand, here's what he's saying, they went the way of Cain. And I don't think he's referring at this point to the murder aspect, but the fact that they did not repent of it. And maybe it is going to, as far as murder, because ultimately, as we continue down the path of sin it keeps getting deeper and deeper in the sin and eventually leads us to, you know, if it goes far enough, theft, murder, and those things, at least in our mind. And he's saying, don't, that these people are going after the way of Cain. So Cain got killed because he gave fruits and vegetables. Why? Because the blood sacrifice is what God has asked for on the sacrifice. How do we know that? Because the very first sacrifice was made by God to give them the skins. And I'm and I, of the school that I don't believe that God just, okay, let there be skins and put skins on them. I think he made a point to them of the cost of their sin and said blood has to be shed to cover your, cover your sins because it is the point. So Abel comes in and gives the fruit of his labors, his, his flesh and his labors of grain or fruits and vegetables. A, no, Cain. <laughs> Abel comes in and offers a proper sacrifice that required the blood. And so his uh, Cain's was not accepted. And when God says, you know, if you do right, you will be accepted. Uh, and if you do wrong, then, then you are rejected. So maybe we'll read that. We will go back and read that. And, you know. At least an animal, probably a sheep, but, but definitely an animal. Of course you would have known that. That's why, that's why he reacted the way. Let's read the story just so we get it, make sure we get the, the details of it. I thought we all knew the story well enough, but that's fine. We'll read the story. Well, it was that too. So, uh, Genesis 4, uh, starting at verse 3. And it came in the process of time that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel 
He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but to Cain and his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell, and the Lord said, Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance following? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? If you do not well, sin lies at your door, and unto you shall be his desire, and you, sh and, and you shall rule and you shall rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel and his brother and slew him. So why do we know that his sacrifice was not acceptable is what God said to him, if you do well. So this tells us that even though we have not been told that they were to give a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, Cain knew the process. Uh, because God does not tell us that we're doing wrong if we don't know that we're doing wrong. I mean, if there's not something to tell us that we're doing wrong, he will give us the truth at that time. If he had not known that he had to give a sacrifice, God would have said, well, Cain, you know, you know, in the future, you need to bring, a, bring blood before me. All right? Now, it has been interpreted and applied that, you know, this was pride. You know, he wanted to do things his way. And ultimately, that's what sin always is. Pride. I'm going to go do things my way. I don't care what God said. I'm going to do it the way that I want. That's an application. It doesn't, you know, and even, even here, it doesn't truly say that, you know, that he knew that it was wrong. But God said, if you had done well, then you would have been accepted. Which does indicate that Cain knew that, the fruits of his hands was not what was desired by God. Now, it would be really nice if we had a little section in there that talked about the 30 or 40 years between the time that they got kicked out of the garden and the time Cain and Abel were doing this with all the rules and instructions that they had been taught. But then again, that would make Genesis about uh, this big. <laughs> And we already have trouble with people wanting to read Genesis as is. And if we had all those rules and laws and instructions in there, well, not laws, but rules and instructions in there, nobody would be reading it. And this is not like it was the first sacrifice. I don't think it was the first sacrifice. We know that God made the first sacrifice. And at some point in time, Cain comes in and says, I want to do it my way. And it was assumed this was the first sacrifice. Yeah, so yeah. it makes sense, more sense. Right. He does, but this, this, the idea of this sacrifice was that it was for covering sin, and, and the works of our hands will never cover sin. The animal, the animal in the garden. And you know, as I've said many times, you know, when God killed the animal to clothe them, it was even worse than normal because. They cared for these animals. These animals were more like pets to them than because there was no food, no death in there. So, you know, and I've told, you know, mentioned this, it would be like going out and killing your dog to, to clothe you, you know. Uh, so you think about how that sin and that, clothe, that proper clothing really had to affect them. They, you know, this was my pet. This is, this is my pet, and now I'm being clothed by my pet. All because I decided to listen and do what God, you know, listen to the serpent and do what God said not to do. Yeah, and first fruits is not necessarily a sacrifice. It's more of a tithe. It's, well, it's an offering. An offering. An offering. It's the, uh, the first of the product that you get, but it was part of the tithe also. And it was the idea that I'm going to give the very first of my produce, which was the best, and also gambling that God was going to give me the second and third <laughs> harvest, <laughs> which, you know, God, not necessarily a gamble, but it was that faith that God said he's going to honor, uh, you know, because a flood might come in, lightning might come in, anything, you know, you know insects, a uh, uh, herd, of, herd of deer coming through, you know, who knows what could take out your garden. Uh, in this area, you know, cows. Yeah. Oh yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah. All kinds of animals. So this is what 
what happened with Cain, we don't, op, we don't completely know that, that he knew that the sacrifice was wrong, but God's reaction to him, you know, he says, if you had done well, in other words, you knew better. And, you know, I do not believe this is the first sacrifice they had made. No, because they're adults by now. Yeah, oh yeah, they're adults. They're not, because they have wives. Because Cain, when he gets kicked out, says, you know, it says he takes his wife and he says, all that find me will want to kill me. So we have a fairly large population. I would almost think that Cain and Abel were probably in their hundreds by now so that there would be multiple people in this world uh, around them. Right. Yeah, it's the first sacrifice. Oh, these guys are only teenagers. And then, yeah. then you run into, you know, all these problems of, well, where are all the people from? Yeah. But if you put them in their hundred or two hundreds, all of a sudden you start saying, okay, Adam and Eve have had sons and daughters, you know, well, it's even at 50. You know, they've, Eve probably had a child, unfortunately for her, probably every nine months. <laughs> Uh, or, or at least every year. So even at that time, there's a group of about 50 of them, 25, you know, possibly 25 families. And I think it was probably more than that by the way his, his comment was. All that find me will want to slay me. So I think, I think at this time, they're much, that it's probably been 100 or 200 years probably by this time. Uh, I can't prove that, but that's just my belief looking at the details of the story. I don't know why he, this, this is the first recorded murder. And note that I say recorded, it not, it's not necessarily the first time murder had happened. So maybe rules had already been established. Maybe God gave them rules for, for, for murder. Yeah, he's still talking directly. Yeah, he's still talking directly to God. So it could be that God says, when somebody commits murder, then the nearest family member can bring retribution just as he's going to tell them in Leviticus. So it is quite possible that that was already established. And Abel, uh, Cain is there going, okay, I murdered my brother. Now I'm the one who's going to be you know, executed and the family is going to execute me. So I don't know. We don't, we don't know and we can only speculate as to why he's worried about this. Uh, but we do know just from God's response, you know, if you had done well, then you would have been accepted. In other words, you knew you were doing wrong, and yet you did the wrong, and then you were surprised that I didn't accept it. So going in the way of Cain is basically going the way we think we want. Right, doing things our way. Uh, doing things our way, and this is the whole thing that he's looking at. Don't go. Number one, you've got these people that are going the way of Cain. Doing things the way they want to, rather than the way that... God says. And in our day and age, we have almost everybody going the way of Cain, uh, doing things their way. And matter of fact, it's even celebrated to do things your way. I did this my way, and I you know, got away with it, and you know, I, my way was better than what they told me to do, and you know, they think anyway. And so, yes, that's part of what this is all about. Don't go the way of Cain. And unfortunately, too often we do. And as I said, in, in our time, people celebrate doing it their way. And we even had, what well, was it, Frank Sinatra that's saying, I did it my way. <laughs> you know, on a very popular song, you know, the, the, you know, but it was celebrating that whole idea, doing it the way he wants to rather than the way that was being instructed. They go on and then say, and ran greedily after the heir of ba Balaam for reward. That one I probably do have to kind of look at the story of because I'm not sure everybody know, remembers the story of Balaam. I know everybody remembers the, the donkey. But do you remember the details of the story? We're going to go to Numbers 22. And you'll know Jude just makes these statements like you guys know these things and he moves right on. Let's read the whole thing just, just to get it into context all. Starting at verse 1. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all of Israel and had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now shall the company lick up all that is about us, 
as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of the Moabites at that time, he sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Bethor, which is by the river land of the children of his people, and called him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against us. Come now, therefore, I pray you, curse this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that they may smite them, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wrought not that he whom you bless is blessed, and whom you cursed is cursed. So we're going to start here. Balaam is a prophet of God somehow. All right? He's called and he's living in Midian. And if you think know about to understand the Midianites, the Midianite people were followers of the one God. All right? They weren't of the seed of Abraham, but they were in the line of Eber. So the Midianites are part of the Hebrew people. That's where Moses got his wife. All right, so Moses was being trained in the, the one God even when he was in Midia. And we've said this many times that all Jews are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Jews. Hebrews, the people of Hebrews are from the line of Eber, following after the one God. Now, they're not called out like Abraham was. They're but uh, they are part of that worship of one God. All right, so this is, this is the people that Midian, uh, that Balaam comes from, all right? And Balak is saying, I, under, I know that when you bless somebody, they are blessed. When you curse somebody, they are cursed. Now somehow Balak does not understand that Balaam is speaking for God. He just knows that whatever Balaam does, works. And he doesn't understand the power on this because the Moabites are not worshipers of the one God. All right, so they're not of the Hebrew faith. They are worshiping multiple gods. They are worshiping idols, which is why they're going to be destroyed during that coming into the land. So verse 7, and the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they came into Balaam and spoke unto them the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, What men are these with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent the, unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covers the face of the earth. Come now, curse them, preadventure that I should be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse this people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Get you out into your land. The Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. All right, so here's the first request. They make it to Balaam. Balaam goes to God. God says, No, you cannot curse these people because they're my people. All right, he does his job. He goes, tells them that God says, I can't go with you. Now, note the size of the people. It says the people cover the face of the earth. Now, we've talked about this long back, long time ago when we were studying this book. Uh, the people of Israel are somewhere around three and a half million people coming out of Egypt. How do we know that? There's 666,000 fighting men. At that age, almost every one of them would have been married, which means that there's about 1.2, 1.3 million people with just the couples. You have a handful of older people, so you can add a couple hundred, couple hundred thousand for the older people that are beyond fighting age. And each one of these families probably had at least two to four kids so that you double that size of the 1.2 uh, million to about 3.4 uh, plus, plus a few extra ones that had more than families. Because when you start reading about their families, you'll see that most of them had five or six children. <laughs> so we know that this people wandering around the wilderness, being fed by God every day for 40 years, somewhere around 
three to four million people at least. That's a large crowd. That's a large crowd of people. I don't know the sizes of our cities around here, but that would be you know, uh, a very large crowd of people moving around all the time. And so this is what's going on. Verse 15, and Balak sent yet again the princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said, thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, let, let nothing, I pray you, hinder you from coming unto me. For I will promote you unto very great honor. I will do whatever you say unto me. Come therefore, I pray, and curse to me this people. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore I pray, pray you, tarry you also here this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me. And God came to Balaam at night and said, if the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. Yet the word, but the, yet the word which I shall say unto you, you shall that shall you do. And Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went to, with the princes of Moab. All right. Here is the place where Balaam has committed his sin. All right. And these really honorable princes come and they say, Balak wants you to come. And he goes, I can't do more than what God says. So he's still answering correctly at this point. Okay, now look at what it says here in verse 20. God says, if the men come and call you, rise up and go with them, but yet the word, the, uh, the, the word which I shall say unto you, that shall you do. And then verse 21, and Balak rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Balak. They, they did not call him again by what's said here. All right. He has said the right thing originally. I don't care how much gold and silver he wants to give me, how much honor he wants to give me, but his greed got the better of him in the morning. And he's going, well, God said I could go with them. Well, God didn't really say he could go with them unless they came back and said, come with us. All right? Uh, and yet Balaam's greed got the better of him and the problem that we see here is, I'm sure he was justifying himself. God said I could go. He left out the if. <laughs> All right. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing in our lives and saying, well, God, you said right here. <laughs> now, and God says, no, I said, if this is true, you can do this. Or if this happens, you can do this. Not just go out and do it. All we know is he woke up in the morning and he got on a donkey. You know, say, well, God, they were here. They were already here, so I'm, I'm going with them. We all do that. If there's something we want to do, we'll find a reason to allow us to do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll find a scripture to justify what we're doing. We'll find a way to justify what we're doing. Uh, we'll take a scripture out of context, just like Balaam did in this case, uh, and do it his way. And he's doing it because of the greed. You know, he's doing it because the greed, you know, he's, he's been promised a promotion. All right. And so this is what he's talking about, the greed of Balaam. I'm not going to read the rest of this. We know that as he's riding, the donkey goes off the, off the road three times. Uh, and on the third time, the donkey just lays down in the road. They're, they're at a narrow spot, walls on both sides of some sort. The donkey lies down. And Balaam starts beating the donkey because the donkey has not been cooperating with him all day. And if you remember, the donkey says, what have I done wrong? You know, I've always been a good donkey. And, and Balaam talks to the donkey, which I've never understood. Now, this wasn't, I, know, I think I know that look of my animal. This was the donkey was talking. <laughs> and he talks back to the donkey. <laughs> Balaam was going to die on his way to Moab. And the donkey saved him. And finally, when he sees the angel of the Lord in the highway with the sword drawn, he goes, okay, God, uh, I'll go back home. <laughs> and then God says, no, but you will not say anything except what I tell you to say. And he goes and he meets Balak. Balak takes him up on a hill. He looks down upon the children of Israel and They've set up an altar. They make the sacrifices. God says, tell him this, and he blesses Israel. And 
Balak gets really mad at him. He says, look, I'm paying you good money to curse these people. <laughs> Takes them to a higher hill and says, look, you know, there's, there's more of them. Look at all of them. Gets the sacrifices, and he gives what God says, and he blesses them. Balak gets very upset with him and says, look, you know, this is getting ridiculous. I'm looking to pay you good money to curse. I'm paraphrasing, but that, you know, the long words about it. I'm paying you good money to to curse these people, and they take them to a higher mountain, higher spot, and he says, now look at all those people out there. They're covering the valley. Offer a sacrifice. Balaam says, gives the word, message from God, and he blesses the people and says, Balak, you cannot win this battle. Balak sends him away in anger. And then, I uh, didn't write down where it was, but we find out <coughs> later on that Balaam then, because he could not curse Israel, and he goes to Balak and says, this is how you can get Israel to curse themselves. And he tells Balak to send in the women and get the women to engage the men and lead them into idol worship. They do that, Israel falls, God brings judgment on them, and Balaam's curse is... Uh, permitted and then God goes after Balaam <laughs> all right but that is the whole process that goes on here is that Balaam wanted that money he wanted the prestige so when he was sent home after the third blessing he was nursing you know licking his wounds saying I didn't get my I didn't get my wealth I didn't go how can we get this wealth and he understood God well enough to know that they had to obey rules. And if he could get them to not worship God, God would have to judge them. And so he brought that sin upon Israel and got his reward. You know, he got his pay for getting them to be cursed. So this is this whole story that is involved in that one little nine-word phrase. <laughs> And it took us about 15 minutes to go over the, the history of this nine-word phrase that Balaam was greedy. He wanted that reward that was being offered to him. And again, we look at it, and we've all said, you know, we do things wrong, but how many times do we make decisions based on, if I just compromise this little bit... I can get the promotion, I won't lose my job, I won't, you know, I'll get somebody to, to give me something. We need to be careful that we're not greedy for wealth in this world rather than following God. And it's so easy to make that little compromise. If I just don't say something, I will be able to get, you know, keep my job or get a promotion. And if I don't defend that person, They'll get fired and I might get their job or whatever it might be. The greed of Balaam. And it was so small. You know, what he did seemed so insignificant. God said, go with them if they ask you again. And he just got up the next morning and said, okay, God said I could go. Uh, they didn't, there's no indication that they came to his door, no indication that they asked him to go with them. Because it just, it literally makes it read that he woke up in the morning, jumped on his donkey and said, it's time to go. And it almost is the way because he, there's, there's no mention of any of them that they had left the day before and he just got on the donkey. Because it seems that he's by himself when he goes down this road and the donkey runs into the field and, the, and all of that. There's no indication that there's anybody with him. Yeah. Yeah, not, 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 a, not, not all the princes there. He's just going, all right, God, I, I'm going. I'm on my way. So this is the story of Balaam. All right? So we've got Cain, who's doing things his way. Balaam, who is greedy. And then our last reference here is, or err or perish in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, this one's going to be a little harder to get because Korah is spelled differently here in the Greek than it is in the Hebrew. The reference here is to Korah, K-O-R-A, K-O-R-A-H. Uh, and this is from Numbers 16. 
So we're going to go back in there because I, am, I know most of you know the story of Korah, but probably not the details of Korah. Now, note that we have gone to a period before Balaam. So he has not actually put these in the order that we would normally see that in the same order that they came chronologically. And so in Numbers 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izzah, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, and Pelath, and Reuben, and the sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said, you take too much upon, upon you, seeing that all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then, lift you up yourselves in the congregation. So we're going to stop here. So their accusation was, Moses, who do you think you are? In real simple English. You know, we're all holy. We're all the people of God. Does that sound a little bit familiar to the way most people in the church think? You know, uh, we're all equal. There's no difference on us. God, God has called all of us. And, you know, Moses, who do you think you are to be taking all this authority upon yourself? And it's Korah leading it. But notice he's ga gathered 250 men of renown. All right, what does that mean? These are guys that have gone out into battle and, and made a name for themselves. These are guys that people look to with great respect. He's gathered quite a crowd of people around him to say, Moses, uh, we don't know who you think you are, but uh, you know, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty famous ourselves. <laughs> okay? Uh, and when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to, unto Korah and unto the company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him, even whom he chooses to come near. Do this, take your censers, Korah, and his company, and put their fire therein, and put incense therein for the Lord tomorrow, and, you shall, and it shall be that the men whom the Lord does choose, he will be holy. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. So now he's repeating it back to them. They're saying, well, who do you think you are? He's going, who do you all think you are? I'm the one that God has been talking to. God has appointed me as the leaders. Who do you all think you are <laughs> to come against? No, because he fell on his face. He's basically saying, you're coming against God. And this is where the leadership in God, when God appoints a leader, then when you're coming against that leader, you're coming against God. And this is what Moses is saying. Who do you think you are? <laughs> uh, let's see. Sorry, I lost my place. You take too much upon you, sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, see, see it a small thing to you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service to the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation and minister thereunto. And he hath brought you near him and all your brethren of the sons of Levi with you to seek and you seek the priesthood also? For what cause both the, you and the company are gathered together against the Lord? And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? So he's reminding them, you know, Korah, you have a very key position. You are separated from all of Israel. You have been chosen by God as a Levite. And you serve in the temple. You're not the priest but you serve in the temple. He goes, can't you think about what you do have? And what is our problem usually when we want somebody else's position? I'm not happy with whatever God has given me to do. And this is what Moses is saying. You're not having to be out there in battle and fighting. You're not having to go you know, do these things. You get to serve in the temple because you are God's people. And you are... You are above the rest of the God's people already, and now you want Aaron's job as well. 
You want the, you want the next job up, you know, from, from that. And he's going, aren't you happy with what God's given you? Now, the sad thing is, too often we're not happy with what God gives us. You know, we always think, you know, uh, why can't I have what they have? You know, uh, God, I've, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor of this church. Why can't I have a church of 10,000 people? I don't want a church of 10,000 people. I'd go crazy to a church of 10,000 people. But, but that's how a lot of people think. My church is just not big enough. My group is not big enough. This, my job isn't important enough. You know, why can't I have, you know, something else? Something I don't have, and you know, look, you know, yes, I get to, you know, help skin the animals and, and clean the animals. It's messy, it's dirty, and and Aaron gets to go go into the temple and put the blood on the, on the altar. Why can't I have what he has? This is what's going on. All right. And Moses said to Dothan and to er- Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and said, Will Will you not come up? Is it a small thing that you have brought us up, up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except that you make yourself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, you have brought us into the land, you have brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields. That will you put out the eyes of these men? Will you not come? And Moses was very wroth with them and said. Respect not you their offerings, for I have not taken one donkey from them, neither have I hurt them. And Moses said to Korah, Be you and all your company before the Lord, and they and Aaron tomorrow. So basically they're accusing Moses of taking things from them. You, know, you, you want to be our prince. You want to rule over us. You want to have all the wealth. And Moses is saying, Hold it, I have taken nothing from you. I am leading you by God's call, but I have not taken things from you. And he says, not even a donkey. All right? He's walking with everybody else, just like everybody else. He's moving around with them. He's not, he's not taking anything from them. And this is kind of the same. This goes all the way back to Abraham. When Abraham said, after the battle of the nine kings, and he says, Sodom says, you know, the kings of Sodom and say, oh, you can keep some of the stuff, you know, keep, you, you rescue to just give us our people. And he goes, I am not going to be enriched by you. You get all your stuff back. I don't want your stuff. I am not, and Moses basically, at that time Abraham was saying, I am not going to be blessed by the unrighteous. I'm not taking, because he already understood where Sodom and Gomorrah was with the sin and the, and all the evil of that valley, the only reason he rescued them was to rescue Lot. He didn't care about the valley. He knew that they were getting what they deserved. And Moses is saying, I don't want anything that God isn't giving me. And so he says, come back tomorrow. And and it says, verse 18, and they took every man his censer and put fire in them and and laid incense there on the door and, and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And Korah gathered with the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord appeared in the congregation. The Lord spoke to, with, unto Moses and unto Abraham, uh, Aaron, saying, Separate yourself from this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O, o God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be wroth with all the congregation? All right? At this point, God is saying, Okay, the people are kind of on their side. Moses and Aaron, you come over here. And at this point, it's saying that God was ready to destroy all four million people. All right. And they're saying, are you going to, God, would you really destroy all these people? Are you really going to destroy all? Kind of sounds a little bit like Abraham praying for Sodom. Will you be wroth with all the congregation? I'm going to say that this is not just the congregation of 250 men that were challenging him. Because they weren't just challenging him out of their own. Out of their own. This was a whole group of people coming against him. Very rarely are these challenges by just one person. They get encouraged. They have to feel like they're representing somebody. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will just be so arrogant they come up, but they always have to feel like they've got the backing of somebody. 
and it's little secrets, you know, you know, you know that person's taking on way too much, you know, responsibility, you know, we should, we should rebel, and yeah, 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 you really good idea, you should. So Korah's coming up, and he's got the encouragements of the people. And the Lord said, in verse 23, and the Lord said unto Moses, saying, speak unto the congregation, saying, get you up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dothan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Ab Dothan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spake to the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in, in their sin. So they got up from the tabernacle of Gorah, Dotham, and Atharam on every side, and Dotham and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. If these men die a, the common death of all men, or if they be visited upon the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open up her mouth and swallow them, then all they appertained to them, and they shall go down quick into the pit, then shall they understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass that they were swallowed. All right. So this whole indication goes back to God was ready to judge the people. All of them. Basically, he was ready to judge them several times. And it's kind of funny when you read Numbers and Exodus. God's like, you know, and I've said this when we were teaching the books. It's almost like a game that God plays with Moses and saying, I'm just going to destroy them all, Moses. You know, you know, Moses, they're your people. And, God, and Moses goes, oh, they're not my people. They're your people. <laughs> they're your people. You can't destroy them. You know. And Moses kept reminding God, he goes, if you destroy them, then your reputation, God, will be lost. People will say that you were able to deliver them from Egypt, but not deliver the land unto them. And so Moses was very good at this most of the time, uh, except when he struck the rock. You know, after he struck the rock and was told he wasn't going to go into the promised land, from that point on, we don't see God challenging Moses to destroy the people. Because Moses was angry with the people. He would not admit that he was at fault for getting angry and striking the rock. And from that point on, you read Moses saying, it's your fault that I'm not going into the, into the promised land. All right? And I don't think, and from that point, I don't remember one time where the, we see this judgment on the people where Moses becomes their mediator to save them. He probably, at that time, he would have said, go ahead, I'm not going, I don't get to go into the promise, and God, you just wipe them all out. I don't care, I'm mad at them. All right? Uh, but the whole change, that whole event of striking the rock changes everything for Moses. Because from that point on, he's, and I can almost understand it, he's 40 years of listening to them complain and blame him for everything that's happening. And one thing you know about Moses, he had a temper. You know, he killed an Egyptian, which drove him out of Egypt in the first place. He was more than once angry with the people. Uh, he comes off of Mount Sinai and finds the people in an orgy and breaks the Ten Commandments that God wrote in his anger. Now, he was a very angry man that did really you know, crazy things sometimes. You know, we don't usually think of him, but when you read carefully through it, he was an angry person, and angry people end up doing things that are going to hurt them. And the last big angry thing that we see was when he struck the rock, and he goes, you rebellious people, must I bring, and there's also the pride there, must I bring water from this rock? And he smacks it, like he did the first time. And God had said, just speak to the rock. Because he messed up the picture of Jesus, because Jesus was the, the rock was a picture of Jesus providing the water of life to his people. And Jesus was only struck once at the cross. He wasn't struck at the crucifixion. He wasn't struck multiple times. So the picture of Jesus was taken a while. And from that point on, all we have to do is ask for the blessings. Ask for his care, not, not have him you know, get beat up for our you know, for sin again. So Moses messed up the picture that was supposed to be drawn. And God says, because of this, you're not going into the promised land. And I truly believe that the biggest part of that was that God knew that Moses would never repent, never recognize that he had gotten angry and he had done what was wrong. 
And, you know, this is the thing. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. And, you know, it's hard for us to understand, and people will go, well, if God knows, then, then he's treating me wrong because he knows, you know, I, you know, I can't, I can't uh, repent if God knows I'm not going to repent. Well, God never made you not repent. He just knows that you weren't going to repent. He knows that you're not going to change. But he still tries. He still puts the word in front of you, you know, and you'll be reading the Bible and all of a sudden you'll get convicted of what, what it is. You'll, you'll listen to a teacher and they'll be talking about just the thing that you don't want to repent of and get out of your life. And all we do is make our heart harder and harder and harder as we reject his word. And Moses did that. He rejected God's offer of grace. And God knew that he was going to reject it. His anger had finally gotten to him. And, you know, I don't really blame him on one side. Can, you know, how long can you put up with bittering, complaining, you know, for how many years, you know, does he, you know, putting it up with it? You know, and it started right from the very beginning. God sent me to deliver you. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Went to Pharaoh. And the first thing that happened when Pharaoh, when he went to him is Pharaoh made their life harder. And what was their reaction? You miserable miserable leader now our life is miserable and and you came here telling us that you were going to deliver us and now we have to work harder to get the same amount of work done and we're getting beat and, and suffering and Moses of course going God what's going on you told me to come in here and now why now things are getting more miserable for them how often does that happen to us I want you to go do something we step out to do that for God and what happens life becomes miserable why because Satan doesn't want us to continue moving forward. So we move forward with God. Satan comes against us and says, I'm going to see if I can stop you. And sometimes he throws a whole lot at us. And our life gets more and more miserable. And anybody who's done anything in the church, you know that I've probably told you, get ready for the attacks. Because it is going to be something that is going to happen. And I'm, I'm more honest than most pastors. I've never had a pastor tell me that the attacks are going to come. But you know what? I've learned by experience when I step out to do something, the attacks come. I look at the scriptures and look at the attacks that come. Gideon. Does anybody remember what Gideon's first assignment was to do? Go destroy the, the, uh, the, the altar to Baal in his village. He destroys it and the people want to kill him. You know, the people of the town want to kill him. And he's in fear. And his dad steps up to defend, defend him. He goes, if Baal be God, then God, then, then Baal can kill him, you know, but you guys aren't going to kill my son. If he really went and, and that is a God, and not, you know, not our God, then let your God defend himself. And, you know, this was his first assignment, and it didn't go well. <laughs> Well, he did well. He got the assignment, but you know the reaction of the people was not not all that good. All through the scriptures, we see just because we're obedient to God does not mean that bad things aren't going to happen and come our direction. Now we see some where people actually died because of their obedience. We see some where they get great blessing. We look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, not bowing down to the idol. And Nebuchadnezzar gets them, pulls them up and says, hey, guys, you know, uh, I've been nice to you. You're my loyal servants. I, I like the work you're doing. I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear this music, you're going to bow down and worship the God, worship this idol. And they say, no, we can't. We're going to worship God. And, and they gave him that chance. And then he said, you know, who will deliver you from my hand? And I love their answer. I've always loved their answer. Our God can deliver us from your hand but whether he does or doesn't we will worship our God and then he threw them in the fiery furnace they fully expected to die and then they walked out <laughs> of the fiery furnace but they were ready to die you know, and this is where we need to be are we ready to obey God no matter what comes our way and it gets hard. Believe me, I understand completely how hard it gets to be to serve God. In, from personal experience and from watching others. When we step out 
Satan doesn't say, oh, well, I lost, it. I lost somebody there. You know, I'm just going to let them get, you know, do whatever it is to, change, to, to, to mess up my kingdom, you know, my, my world. He goes after us with a vengeance. And he still has to go to God and ask for permission. And, you know, I sometimes wonder, God, why do you let so much permission to Satan to try to stop us? You know, huh? It strengthens us in the long run. And it also pushes us into dependence upon God because we come to a place where am I going to quit in my own strength, which I'm going to quit no matter what, and follow God, or am I going to quit and just give up? And God is saying he brings us to that point. And the stronger we are, the more he has to put against us to get us to that point where we either turn to him for strength or turn against him and say, I give up. It's too hard. I, I can't do it anymore. And we've all done it both ways over our lifetime, you know, uh, where we give up or turn to him. It, it is a razor edge, and God knows that the point that he brings us to is there to force us to accept his help. 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such that is common to man... But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. And, you know, and that way of escape is Jesus. You know, everything is common. And it won't break us theoretically. But the reason it won't break us is because we turn to Jesus. If we don't turn to Jesus, it breaks us. Because God does not, going back to Cain... He does not want us giving our service to him. He doesn't want our service. He wants us surrendered to him completely. Because our service is good works, and God says our good works don't stand before him. You know, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Nothing I do is going to stand. It may even be good. You know, what is thrown, all of our works are thrown into the fire at the beamer seat judgment. Wood, hay, and stubble get burnt. All the gold, silver, and precious gems don't get burnt. And you think about this, when I do my work, much of what I do is nothing but, but stubble. All right? But how much things are made out of wood? Pretty sturdy things can be made out of wood. Tables, chairs, houses. Many times when we're serving God, we do things that are wood. They're actually pretty good. Some people will be blessed with gold and silver from our work of wood, but our work of wood will be burnt up. And you know, I've mentioned this one time to a group of pastors and go, how much of our work as pastors is wood? You know, and they're going, what? We're trained to teach. We're trained to understand the word of God. Matter of fact, because we're paid, we're expected to stand up every Sunday morning, whether I'm prepared or not, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever other day, and deliver something. And we've been taught to be able to teach. So there's times when you're just teaching off of your own strength in your own wood, and people may be getting gold and silver out of it, but you're just building a nice, sturdy frame that people can get gold and silver out of, but yours burns up. And this is the funny thing about it. God can use my wood to reward other people. So that I get nothing, they get everything. Now it's better when I really let God work through me and study and let the Spirit lead and work through me. Now I get gold and silver and precious gems. You get gold, silver, and precious gems if you accept it, and we all win. But we need to understand that God is not going to let anything that we do on our own stand. Cain, you wanted to do it your way? I'm not accepting it. Balaam, you wanted the greed to do it your way. I'm not accepting it. Korah? Dotham and Abraham, <laughs> you wanted to do things your way and challenge authority, and God says, I'm not going to accept it. Now, some of those are pretty extreme. Cain was driven out of the land. 
and became a wanderer with his, with his family, at least his wife and probably family at that point. Uh, Balaam, he totally rebelled even further and said, you know, he went back to Balak and said, this is how you can still get them cursed. Korah never even had a chance. Yeah. God's judgment said, okay, Korah, your family and you three and your families, you're gone. And I, I can't even imagine what that would be. Look at, you're standing there watching and all of a sudden the earth cracks open, swallows them and closes back up over them. And they're gone. You know, we don't know how fast it was or anything, but they were gone in a, in a, in a very quick period of time. And you know that happened at that point, nobody wanted to challenge Moses and Aaron anymore. Because this became very obvious that, uh, hold it, uh, Moses doesn't have enough power to open the earth and close the earth. Uh, this is definitely something that is bigger than we are and bigger than him. And so it brought them. And, you know, we come, sometimes have trouble with this idea. The children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt without a Bible, without rules, without anything, living in a land of idolatry. They were polluted completely with idol thinking. Completely. They weren't coming out the way we know Jews today with the law and the prophets and all of these things going on. They did not have any of these things. They had maybe probably the stories because Moses had to get the stories someplace. But they didn't understand what God wanted in righteousness. They only understood that Abraham had been called out from the people. And they were special because great-grandpa Abraham was called out. Great-grandpa Isaac had been called out and given this promise that a great nation was going to be formed. Jacob, their, their grandfather and you know, great-grandfather, was called out special and given this promise that they were going to be a great nation, and now they're a great nation. That's the only thing they really understood. They didn't understand the righteousness of God completely. And I'm sure they had some traditions and everything that were passed down, you know, word of mouth, but they did not have a Bible or scripture to follow. And it's not till they get to Mount Sinai that God speaks and says, here are the laws I want you to live by. And that is the first time laws come out. Now, I'm sure they understood sacrifice and all that, but people didn't also understand fully because they've been living in a pagan world where idols were worshipped. And the only thing they knew about these sacrifices, you walked out to the statue, you played this put a sacrifice on there and you offered it. They remember the story of Abraham possibly taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah and God rescuing him and they, when he was supposed to kill a lamb on Mount Moriah. Whether they knew the story, I don't know. I kind of believe they did. But they understood some of the stories. They understood that they were worshiping the one God, but yet that they had polluted minds. Probably not, or, or not, definitely not doing it through the priests. So we don't know what they were doing. And it doesn't tell us a lot. All right. They understood, I'm sure, the rules and everything, but they didn't fully understand everything about it. And it's the same thing for us. We need to be careful that when we know truth, that we follow the truth. And to seek after truth, because we have the word of God. And so we need to be reading the word. We need to be taught, taught the proper way of doing things and then be obedient. Because the people of Israel were constantly, during the time of Moses, and he had a hard time because they did not have a solid teaching. And you know, sometimes I think, because I've seen this so often with people, is they want to match what they already know to Christianity, rather than throw out what they, don't, what they learned and say, I'm going to just do things God's way. And it's part of pride. I don't want to feel, I just feel like I don't want to waste my life. You know, I wasted all these years learning things wrong. You know, how can I mesh them together? And I've seen people do this so often in my lifetime where, well, I've been a Muslim, I've been to this, I've been to that, and I've got to figure out how, you know, what I used to do and how I used to live matches up to God. Instead of saying, God, I'm just going to do things your way. And it can even be as bad for those who grew up in the church. Because if you get taught wrong as a kid, 
And unfortunately, it's easy to be taught wrong as a kid because so many churches will take whoever's available to teach the kids to teach the kids. And you know what? Unfortunately, it's somebody oftentimes who doesn't know the Bible and they just try to teach them Bible stories and everything. And I've heard crazy things being taught to kids that I've had to stop. Uh, my personal opinion is the very best teachers of a church should be teaching children, period. And most of them don't want to teach children. They want to teach the adults. It's more challenge to teach the adults. Well, my opinion is much more challenging to teach kids. And I want to lay a good foundation with kids. Because I don't want the kids to have a bad foundation. Because they may not be lucky enough to get a good teacher late down the road to correct it. And it's also much harder to correct bad teaching than it is to teach correctly in the first place. And I've seen it over and over. Well, that's not what I was taught. Well, I'm sorry. This is what the Bible says. Now, your argument isn't going to be with me. Go argue with God if you want. Now, complain about the teacher who taught you in the past. I don't care, but this is what God says. And we need to be ready to say, if, when we read the scriptures, and believe me, it happens to me not as much as it used to, but there were many times when I'd be studying the Bible and going, God, uh, that's not what I, believe, you know, what I was taught when I was younger. And I'd have to go do some really heavy research to find out, was I misinterpreting what I was reading or had I been taught wrong? And I had to change what I had been taught more often than not to match with what the Bible says. And we need that mindset in our mind that whatever God says is what I'm going to follow in spite of whatever I've been taught from the past that when I read it and I understand that it's that it's true you know you want to be careful with changing easy because you want to make sure that what you're reading you're understanding and that it's true but it should be a time to be challenged okay now I've got to dig in was I taught right earlier or is my understanding of this right and dig in and find out what is what is true and we can never let the teachings of the church overrule what God's word says and every denomination has areas that are little little iffy at times I'm a Baptist because I agree with the the, the, the Baptist faith message do I agree with every single thing that, that the Baptists do no which is why some people look at me and go, well, are you really Baptist? I'm going, yes, I'm Baptist. I believe the, the 13 points of Baptist teaching, but I don't take it the way many of them want to take it oftentimes. So you've got to challenge yourself and say, I'm going to believe the word of God no matter what. No matter if it disagrees, no matter who in, the, who in the church disagrees, I'm going to follow the word of God. And if you've got too many leaders in the church disagreeing, you find another church. <laughs> it's just the way it is. All right? Uh, and hopefully I don't. You know, if, I, if you see something that I'm taught differently, come and tell me. We'll talk about it. Uh, because you know one thing? I realize I'm human. I might make a mistake once in a while. You know, I just once in a while, you know, but I understand. And I'm not looking for people to agree with me 100%. I expect people to agree with me on the most important things. The Bible is absolutely true in the God's word. And that Jesus is the one and only son of God who died for our sins and rose again from the dead and is the only way to heaven. Now, if you want to disagree with me on those points, we've got a problem. <laughs> But if you agree with me on those points, we can work out just about any other thing that's out there in the scriptures. Because I have not, there have not sat under a pastor that I have agreed with 100% anywhere. Now I agree with them mostly, but I have never sat under a pastor that I agree with every single word that they speak. And you know what? I'd be afraid if I did. Because there's something wrong if that that happened. I'm not being challenged. I'm not being taught. You know, if I'm, if I'm smart enough to know everything that pastor is teaching, then I need a different pastor. You know, I need a pastor who's going to be able to teach me something. And, you know, even for me, I have to have teachers teaching me, which is why I spend as much time as I do on the Christian radio channels listening to teachers teaching. And getting just as irritated as everybody else when they, and on a week when they're all teaching at me. 
and trying to figure out how in the world these people that don't know me are knowing what to preach at me. You know, and understanding that it's the Holy Spirit teaching, that, teaching me through what they're saying that week. We need to be able to get to this place where we're humble and we're being teachable and following after God and, and letting our lives change. Not being doing things our own way, not following after gain, not trying to take somebody else's position, all of these things, and we didn't even get halfway through that sentence. Uh, we just got through the story. But this is where we're at with this, is are we going to, to bow to God's authority? All the way down the road, God directly and anybody he's put over us. And too many times people do not like authority. We, we all don't like authority. None of us like to be told what to do. Now, doesn't matter what level of authority it is, none of us like to be told what to do. And we need to learn to submit to authority. And God pointed out three people in this section that didn't submit to authority. Before that, it was the angels not you know, submitting to the authority. You know, he's gone through a long list of people not submitting to authority and not surrendering and being humble. Lord, we ask you to bless us today. Help us to go out today to humble ourselves to, to, to you, to authority, to seek you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.